Hi, this is Gail Trotter, host of Right in DC. I'm so excited today we'll be talking with Joel Pollack, senior editor of Breitbart News and the author of the new book, How Trump Won, the inside story of a revolution. We have so much to talk about Joel being on the press plane, the claims of anti-Semitism lodged against Donald Trump, and the media bubble of how they can all talk the same language. You're not going to want to miss this. I'm Gail Trotter, and here's what I think. Today, the Trump administration is expected to sign a new travel ban. The advisor Stephen Miller to President Trump says the policy is going to stay the same, but they're making technical changes to reflect the court decisions by the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit on the travel pause. And this immigration order will have the same priority of national security and national sovereignty. And remember that it is a pause. It is not a ban. And it's something that President Trump said over and over again in every speech that he gave during the campaign that he was going to reverse the policies of the past eight years and start to protect Americans again. It will be very interesting to see whether the courts accept the changes that are going to be made in this executive order, if it will be enough. But given the very poor legal reasoning of the Ninth Circuit decision and of the Washington State Federal Court judge's decision, whether anything that is related to this at all will be able to withstand the judicial scrutiny of the country's most liberal courts, all with Obama appointees and some Bush appointees who apparently have decided to swing with their uh, Obama-appointed colleagues. And it's an interesting tactical point, too. President Trump could have continued with the executive order the way it was, taken it up to the Supreme Court, continued on the path that the court cases were going now, because uh, people might not understand this, but there were just temporary orders issued in the Ninth Circuit case and in the Fourth Circuit case in the Eastern District of Virginia. These were not settled cases. But I believe it is a smart tactical move of the Trump administration to revise the order to address some of the concerns and to seem as though they are receptive to making sure that these concerns are reflected in the final order. I am very interested to see the details of this order, and I'm sure we will be discussing them with future guests on Right in D.C. I'm Gail Trotter, and that's what I think. Welcome back to Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Here's her guest in the hot seat. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. We're speaking with Joel Pollack, senior editor of Breitbart News and author of the new book, How Trump Won, The Inside Story of a Revolution. This book is out today in paperback form on Amazon, and you can also find it at Barnes & Noble. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. So I have to start off saying two things. Uh, first, I was showing your book to my 13-year-old son last night, and he was astonished. He said, oh my gosh, how could they possibly have gotten this book out so fast? So we're in almost March right now, and the election was only in November. So I'm curious, how did you and your co-author, Larry Schweikert, get this book published and out to the people so quickly? Well, the credit really goes to the publisher, to Regnery, and their editors and their design team and their marketing team. Larry and I were both working on manuscripts during the election uh, separately. And then we, I think, separately told Regnery we were doing it, and then Regnery had the idea of weaving them together. And it was an extremely feat of editorial skill that they were able to do it. And if you read the book, you'll see that they interweave my chapters with his chapters, and the reader knows which is which. It's masterful. Mine are also... Yes, it, it's it's you know a lot of fun. It goes back and forth, and and what's really fun about it is he has a different set of expectations. He believed Trump was going to win from the beginning, and I thought Trump would win the nomination but lose the election. So it's an interesting contrast as you go back and forth, and I think makes what is a nonfiction history of the election read more like a dramatic story. And it was a dramatic story anyway. Uh, so there's enough interest in it from that perspective. But the back and forth and the different perspectives, I think, give give the book a little bit more life. Yes, it certainly does. And I like it, too, because it has the data for the people who are, I don't want to call them data nerds, but people really like numbers uh, from Larry Schweikert. And then there's more the experiential part of your being on the press plane, you talking with the voters, you talking with the people at the campaign stops and the rallies. And so that was the second thing I was going to say. I just loved this book. It was an amazing book. And we are reading endless accounts by by people in the press, by thought leaders. You know, they're people who are still in the early stages of grief and denial about Donald Trump's election as the 45th president. And your book is a very clear-minded analysis of what actually enabled Donald Trump to win the presidency. And as I was saying earlier, I really appreciated that you shared in a very personal way in this book. Uh, I, I read in your book with interest how you are a practicing Jew and you would take off from your work on the campaign trail in different cities to go have uh, the Sabbath dinner with your friends and you would cut out the news entirely. And when people knew that you were traveling with the Trump campaign from the book, you would talk about how they would send you messages messages like that you were a bottom feeder and this was from a friend and you would get messages saying that uh, that Donald Trump was an anti-Semite, that he was the next incarnation of Hitler. And I would like you to share with listeners a little bit. It, it really struck me when you're describing this, how you said it caused you to pause and to think, is it true? Is this criticism of Donald Trump accurate? Well, it wasn't because of the facts, but just because of the vehemence of the messages coming from people who seemed very sure of themselves. You know, when your relatives or your friends come at you with, with commentary like that, you, you do take a moment and think, well, maybe I'm the crazy one. But really, I think what happened was people were given an idea, which was that if Donald Trump were elected, all these horrible, horrible things would happen. And, and that scenario has been hard for people to turn off in their minds. I think that it was such a surprise to them that Trump actually won that 
they expected all of these nightmarish things to happen now that they had been told the reason they had to vote against him was to prevent those things from happening. So, yeah, I mean, when you talk about Hitler and you talk about all these things, I mean, these are very emotive terms. There's a reason that people in academic debates don't use words like that, because when you're trying to understand what's actually going on and trying to study something, you can't throw bombs like that around. But on Facebook and social media, when the insults become personal and when the examples people use become so extreme and, right. and, and the thinking is so out there, it, it just it just gets to you and, and you and you start to wonder, you know, have I gone mad or has the world gone mad? I mean, what what <laughs> what do these people know that I'm missing? I mean, I know that I'm there every day covering the campaign, but maybe maybe they have a sense of perspective that I don't. And you get a chance to think about it and you realize they're wrong. But it is it is difficult. I, I think almost everybody has had some version or another of those kinds of arguments with friends and relatives on Facebook and other places. But how do you get to the point and how did the American people who voted for Donald Trump get to the point where they could turn off that the effect of that emotive language, very inflammatory language? I, I would say the worst. I, I really can't think of a worse thing be, to be called than Hitler or fascistic. How were you able, through your experience covering the campaign, to not only tune that out, but to reject that? Well, I think it's because our democracy works. I mean, despite claims on both sides that, you know, the voting process was rigged or whatever. And, you know, you heard it from Trump a bit before the election. You heard it from Clinton afterwards. But despite all of that, people knew that once they went into the voting booth, it was their, their private vote, that nobody would know how they voted. At least nobody would be able to connect their vote to them personally. And so people who were supporting Trump were often quiet about it. And that includes conservatives who didn't want to admit to their liberal neighbors or sometimes even their conservative neighbors that they were voting for Trump. It also includes, I think, some Bernie Sanders supporters who didn't like Hillary Clinton and what she stood for and secretly, quietly voted for Trump and, and didn't want their liberal progressive friends to know. So the privacy of the ballot box is still something that we believe in. And I think that's one of the reasons people had the courage. One of the more interesting polling questions was asked, I think, by only one or two polls, which was not just who are you going to vote for, but who are the people in your neighborhood going to vote for, which is a way for people to express their personal preference without feeling like they're expressing it, 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 something private that they don't want other people to know. Uh-huh. So, you know, it, it's it, it's very interesting. So that may be one of the reasons polling was inaccurate, because the people who were voting for Trump didn't necessarily want to tell pollsters what they were doing. But if you ask them what people around them were doing, then they were slightly more likely to be more honest. So just a really interesting election. And hopefully in future elections, I mean, who knows, but hopefully we'll see people in the media pulling away from this attempt to shame people who are voting one way or the other. Uh, look, with the media's behavior right now, that's, that's, that's quite a stretch to, to believe that they'll change that behavior. But, you know, maybe the cooler heads will prevail and, and they'll, they'll realize that by taking an active position against Trump, which they certainly did during the election and right. even more so now, right. they're, they're creating a no-win situation for themselves because not only can't they defeat Trump, but they're alienating people who might otherwise be inclined to tell them what they were thinking. They're, they're removing the feedback mechanism that allows them to know whether they're convincing the public or not. So I, I think we've got to pull back from that as a country, particularly the Democrats have to get with the program, realize the election is what it was. You know, Democratic candidates have to stop running for a better November 2016 and start running for the future. And What a great line. That's yeah, brilliant. Once they do that, I think the voters will come back to them or at least give them a second look and we'll have we'll have something uh, of a more serious political debate in the country. But right now, it's just it's just a bunch of people screaming. Well, and, and it's, it's people on both sides of the aisle, because in your book, you write about how Donald Trump was not only having to deal with the calumny from the left and charges of fascism, Mussolini, Hitler, what have you. But there was also the thought leadership of the conservative movement. 
movement, uh, National Review, David Brooks, David Frum, a lot of the inside Washington, D.C., New York City, Excella corridor type people. We're not talking about lobbyists. We're talking about the people who see themselves of as the leaders of the intellectual or the policy or the ideolo- ideological part of the conservative movement who were also throwing all of these attacks on President Trump. And uh, how, how was he able to overcome not only the Democratic Party opposing him, certainly the mainstream media, all of the hysterical leftist groups, but from his own side, the establishment Republicans and the thought leaders of the conservative movement? It's a really great question. I, I think that criticism of Trump is certainly acceptable and you know, can be interesting at times, helpful to him, I guess. What, what happened in the primary was different. And I think it's all easier to understand if you accept as a starting point the idea that most of those critics you mentioned, the Beltway conservatives, were absolutely convinced Trump was going to lose. Right. They just could not they could not see him winning. I thought he was going to lose, but I, I believed he could win. But most of those critics believed this was absolutely a doomed campaign and that he was going to drag the, Repart- the, the Republican Party to its death. So they fired every bullet they had, rhetorically speaking, at his campaign, and they pulled out you know, the doomsday weapons, the self-destruct weapons, all of these things to try to stop him. And as a result, they severed their relationship, essentially, with right. the incoming Republican administration. And it turns out they gambled incorrectly, that <laughs> Trump saw something that, that they didn't. So now they've used words that are very hard to take back, and they've done things that are very hard to undo. And they've mismanaged the relationship that they could have had with the new administration. In some cases, probably some of those people could have been working in the new administration. But they've created a situation you know, based on, on perhaps you could even say noble motives. They wanted to save the party. They wanted to save their conservative ideals from being utterly destroyed. But they they basically uh, went all in, and, and Trump called their bluff. Yes. And, and then, you know, he, he pulled an inside straight to win the election. So they're, they're left bankrupt. And, and so now they're trying to claw their way back, and there's all these various litmus tests that are still applying to the administration and the conservatives who support the administration. And it's still kind of an unhealthy dynamic, and yet it's less crazy than, than what we see on the left. I mean, what the left is essentially rejecting ordinary politics. Right. They're calling their, their opposition movement the resistance, you know, as if we live in Nazi-occupied Europe or something right, like that. Right, right, right. It's, 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 it's just unhinged, to use, a, to use a word that's very much in vogue right now. So I think that there's room to repair the relationships in the conservative movement. But I think we have to understand how we got here. And I, I think it was just that Trump saw something that many conservatives in the Beltway did not, which was that there was a huge constituency out there in blue America for some of the policies he was offering under a red ticket. Right. And your book has a great list of some of those predictions. Ross Douthit of The New York Times wrote, Donald Trump will not be the Republican nominee. And Fox contributor Carl Rove, who we know was the strategist for George W. Bush, said on NBC, Trump, MSNBC, Trump can't win the general election because conservatives will stay home. Now, Now, those are not the words that you can't really take back like you're describing, but they show just like what the establishment Republicans, the thought leaders were all thinking. They did not think that this was possible. You know, when I covered the Trump victory party on November 8th, um, 
right before I left for that evening, I checked Twitter and Frank Luntz had said that the next president of the United States will be Hillary Clinton based on the exit right. polls. So, you know, it was basically almost everybody. There, there were fewer than five major conservative pundits who gave Trump a chance of winning. And those that did were those that had a sense of history, people who had, had seen this before. And I, I'm talking about people like Conrad Black, Peggy Noonan, and, and my co-author, Larry Schweiker, who yes. not only had a sense of history, but also had data that nobody else had. And, and he talks about some of that in the book. So, you know, these are people who saw which way things were going. They were also less nervous about a Trump presidency. I mean, Conrad Black, you know, great conservative commentator. He wrote a book largely positive about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he doesn't agree with a lot of, I guess, what Roosevelt did or, or the things Roosevelt believed. I mean, Conrad Black is a conservative and Roosevelt set up big government as we know it. Right. But what, impre- what impressed Conrad Black about Roosevelt was his leadership. And, and that's what makes him one of the great presidents. And so these were people who had lived through presidents with whom they disagreed. These are people who had understood how history sometimes throws up these surprises. Peggy Noonan in particular spoke to a lot of people out there in the heartland throughout the campaign who were telling her just why they supported Trump. And a lot of conservative pundits were busy trying to impress each other with how skillfully they could denounce him rather than listening. So it was it was just fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. And now in retrospect, it looks kind of obvious how he went behind the blue wall. He didn't fight the usual Republican battle, which is to go for the moderate voters in the swing states and hope to tip the balance. Right. He, he did he did some of that. But what he really did was he went into the heart of the Democrats' constituency and stole their voters right. and, and added those voters. <laughs> you know, he, he added those Democratic base voters to the Republican coalition, at least for that election, you know, and, and, and maybe again in 2020. So it's really fascinating. It was a fascinating moment in American history. I don't know if it pretends a broader realignment. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Probably pretend, probably depends on how successful Trump is or not. But the Midwest and upper Midwest have been looking for political reform for quite some time. You could maybe look at the early rumblings of Trump's victory and some of the things that were happening with Scott Walker in Wisconsin, Bruce Rauner in Illinois, uh, up in Michigan, right, which is now a right-to-work state, almost unthinkable just a few years ago, Ohio. And so a lot of reform is happening in the Midwest because voters have been willing to take a chance on conservative governors. And I think possibly because of the success of those governors, even though not all of them supported Trump, we know that John yes. Kasich in Ohio, for example, didn't even go to the Republican convention. But right. Uh, you know, the voters understood that conservative policies worked and, and they were ready, I think, to give a very close look to a Republican candidate. And and Trump understood that. He apparently consulted with Rick Santorum, the former Pennsylvania senator. Yes, he did. About Yeah, and Santorum used a lot of the same policies Trump would later adopt in, in winning the Iowa caucuses and sweeping the Midwest. So Santorum and, and, should know, get some credit for helping Trump win. Right. And, and let's not forget the importance of Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania was astonishing uh, in, in the way that it went for Trump. Right. You know, I, I, I don't know that anybody was counting on it to do so. I, I knew that Trump had to win at least one blue state. In my mind, the electoral map had Hillary Clinton winning narrowly as, as long as everything lined up the way the polls suggested they might. And I knew that Trump's only chance depended on winning one blue state in addition to Ohio. Well, he didn't win one. He won three. He won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And he came very close to winning Minnesota. Uh, you know, in By the book, hair's read, breath, yes. Yeah, in the book you'll read about just how close he was to winning Minnesota. 
He also almost won New Hampshire, and uh, my co-author Larry says that it's likely Trump lost New Hampshire and Minnesota because of the Access Hollywood take that came out in October. So there was some truth to, to the idea that it damaged Trump. Right. But in Larry's mind, it just meant that his margin of victory was smaller than it would have been because Larry was convinced Trump was going to win by a landslide. And he said, well, that prevented a, a major landslide, but it didn't stop him from winning. And on the campaign trail, it looked like there were lots of events that added up to momentum shifts for Trump down the home stretch. So you, you get both, both perspectives from, from reading our book. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with Joel Pollack on Right in D.C. I'd like to thank the Franklin Forum for working to help students gain an appreciation of our democratic principles. You can learn more about them at their website, Prometheum.org. Welcome back to Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, and you're listening to Right in D.C. I'm so excited to have with me today Joel Pollack. We're talking with him about his book, How Trump Won, The Inside Story of a Revolution. Joel Pollack is also the senior editor of Breitbart News. Joel, thank you again for joining us today. Good to be with you. My understanding is that you attended Harvard. Is that correct? My my recollection is that I did. (laughs) (laughs) And I know you are familiar with Charles Murray's book, uh, Coming Apart, America, and how there are these super zip codes where there are people who live in these zip codes, and they are mostly surrounded by people who went to Ivy League schools or similar type schools, and they're only interacting with people who have a similar uh, educational pedigree like yours, and they are not really with the people. They don't understand how most people live who have, you know, nine to five jobs and and have the struggles that many of us have. And you, you kind of fit that a little bit. So when you were on the press plane following Donald Trump's plane around the country, going to, as, as you mentioned earlier, going to these places that were supposed to be bastions of Democratic support that would give the election without a doubt to the inevitable victor Hillary Clinton... You had an interesting opportunity because you were kind of of the press, but not of the press because you have the similar educational pedigree. You're on the plane with all of the major outlets, but you have the alternative news, the um, not mainstream media background. And how did you feel riding on, I would say, the most bubbly of bubbles of this plane with the mainstream media? That's a good way of putting it, sort of a bubble inside a bubble. Um, look, I, I met a lot of great people in the traveling press corps, some really great journalists. In general, I would say the outlook of the traveling press corps was that Trump was going to lose. They couldn't really understand the point of all this. They were certainly <laughs> diligent about reporting the news. You know, people were very keen to record every minor deviation from the prepared text and so forth. But I think there was in the background a, a shared expectation that, that this was all going to end in tears for Trump and, and kind of a fascination with his commitment to, to fight so hard and work so hard, almost like watching a car crash. You know, you can't believe the scale of devastation that, that that's about to unfold. It was that, that sort of attitude. Right. And I did meet journalists who would privately say they thought he could win. But they tended not to be from the United States. I I just think that the media bubble in the U.S. had created such a narrow set of expectations about what politics was about. And what impressed the 
the media in general about Obama was that he is such a media creature. I mean, Barack Obama... Why do you think that is? Well, he speaks the language of the media. He speaks the language of the Ivy League. He, he came across as incredibly brilliant because he said things people understood and had heard at college and law school, and he articulated those views very well. He had very little practical experience other than being a community organizer, and so it, it didn't translate to results on the ground. I mean, our foreign policy today is probably in the greatest disarray it's ever been in. Yes. And, and, tr- and Trump's trying to figure that out. There were some things Obama did all right on, but for the most part, he was very lucky in some ways to have uh, fewer economic headwinds than he might have had and to have fewer foreign policy problems than he could have had. And and some of the things that he did, like doubling the national debt, basically, uh, those are problems that are going to come due one day. So uh, whichever president's in office, when, when we have to deal with those, those pressing problems that are just ticking time bombs, they're going to have a tough political challenge. But I just think that the media in general, as you say, sort of coming from college backgrounds, not everybody, but many people, they found it, I think, easier to be critical of Trump, who, although he also went to an Ivy League school, he went to Penn, uh, to Wharton for business school. He... He came from Queens and, and, and spoke like a New Yorker in a very direct way and spoke to ordinary people. He spoke as an ordinary person would speak to these crowds. And that's part of the reason people loved him is that he sounded like someone who would sit down with him at the table or at the bar and have a conversation about life. And that created an instant intimacy between him and his audience. Right. And he's Rather criticized than, by those media people for not having a large vocabulary, which I think is a very interesting criticism coming from them. Well, <laughs> You know, politically, so many people were fed up with what's going on in the country. The only word you really needed to know how to say was no. (laughs) So if you could get up and say no, you know, you get a lot of votes. He's good at saying no, right? Yeah, right. But, but, you know, it it didn't really matter. Uh, I I think people prefer a smarter president. There's actually some academic data on that, that people are willing to overlook a corrupt candidate if if they think that they're the smarter candidate. But one of the things Trump did was he convinced voters that he was smarter, even though he wasn't academic. Right, yes. And he did that by, by constantly criticizing things like the Iran deal, for example, which he called the worst deal ever. He basically convinced people he was a smarter negotiator. And we all know business people who may not have gone to the best colleges or to any colleges, but who become fantastically successful because they have an innate intelligence and an innate ability that they cultivate. And I mean, we all we all know people like that. I yes, know people never finished, absolutely. Never finished high school and became hugely successful. So th- that's that's what he tapped into. And and yes, he went to college and, and, and shared that in, in, at least theoretically with, with some of the people in the media who were his biggest intellectual critics. But what he also had that I think they didn't have was he had a sense of marketing and he had a sense of how to reach consumers. And I don't think Republicans or Democrats have had that for a very long time. Obama reached a lot of people and brought huge numbers of people out to vote, especially in 2008. But that was also because the media operated as a marketing arm of the Obama campaign. So he was able to reach people because he had help. When it came to understanding what ordinary people were going through, he was often quite tone deaf. Remember that comment he made during the primary election in 2007, 2008 about the price of arugula? You know, I don't know how many people <laughs> could tell you what arugula is, but right. you know, it, it, it's that, that sort of thing. I, he just came from a different world and he had a lot of intermediaries who helped him out. I think he was also fortunate to come of age politically at a time that Facebook was just emerging on the scene yes. and others, other sort of social media technology. But Trump, you know, uses Twitter and he's, he's very blunt. Twitter is very short, clipped, concise medium, lends itself to ordinary speech, not academic bloviations. And so um, both through that medium and through the message, he was able to talk directly to the American people over the heads of the media. Yeah, just say no to academic bloviations. I think that should be a campaign slogan going forward. <laughs> 
And it's very interesting in your book, you talk about how people voted for President Obama because they wanted to erase the stain of slavery and the treatment of African-Americans in our history. They felt good about voting for him when he ran again in 2012. A lot of people felt like they, they wanted to continue that. But then in the 2010 House election, they put the Republicans into the majority position in the 2012 Senate elections. They put the Republicans in the majority position. And the idea with the divided government is that they would be able to stop Obama. So you could still vote for Obama and support having a black president. But the idea was that the GOP would rise to the occasion and they would use the power of the purse to actually stop Obama's fundamental transformation of the United States. And in your book, you really kind of go into that and how the the anger that swelled up from there being no effective opposition from the Republican House and Senate to Barack Obama's uh, a policy agendas, executive orders, his executive branch overreach, that that made it really ripe for Donald Trump to come in and effectively oppose all these changes in the fundamental things. And I, I would say, you know, anything from social to economic to foreign policy and just to see the the world, what, what the result was from President Obama's uh, complete lack of opposition from the Republican Party. Can you explain that a little bit, how you, how you discuss it in your book? Well, if, if you want to look at it this way, you can look at it as a kind of a Wall Street transaction, almost a hostile takeover. I mean, Trump looked at the Republican Party and saw an undervalued asset. And the asset that he had was opposition politics. That is to say that the Republicans were the opposition party. There was clearly a market for opposition because voters had come out with the Tea Party wave in 2010. And as you mentioned, in subsequent midterm elections taking the Senate. And yet the party itself was not offering opposition to that market because once the party got into power, once the leaders were in place, they did not oppose Obama. They did not do anything effective to stop Obamacare and so on. So he said, well, look, I, I see this as an undervalued institution and I'm going to take it over. I'm going to make the voters an offer that they can't refuse. I'm going to tell them that we're going to make America great again, which is fundamentally, I think, what people wanted to hear. And he basically took the Republican Party label and bought it out. And that left some conservatives fuming on the sidelines, not because he was doing things that weren't conservative, but because they saw themselves perhaps as the inheritors of the Republican Party legacy and wanted to take over if the dust ever settled from a loss in the 2016 election. And Trump said, no, we don't have to lose this election, actually. I'm going <laughs> to offer you a winning prospectus. And that asset that you're holding, your, your shares effectively in this opposition party, that asset is worth a lot more than the current management is, is letting you believe it is. And I'm going to give you a higher price and let, let's go out there and win. And that was a, an irresistible offer to the voting base of the Republican Party. And whether the party leaders liked it and whether the commentariat and Beltway liked it didn't really matter because this was a hostile takeover. And Reince Priebus, who sort of came out with something at the end for all of his endeavors, now now serving as White House Chief of Staff, before all that came into play, you know, he really did a good job of making sure that the contest in the Republican Party was fair. Right. Um, you know, even Van, even Van Jones on CNN 
you know, no friend of Republicans, said that he wished Ryan's previous had been running the Democratic National Committee because the DNC had rigged its primary against Bernie Sanders and, and prevented a kind of outsider takeover from happening, whereas the Republican Party, merely by playing by the rules, facilitated that process. You know, and, and anyone, else, anyone else could have done what Trump did if they had tried. Well, uh, by that I mean, it's not that they have his abilities. He has unique abilities in some ways. But the issues he was talking about, some of those things were out there for other candidates to talk about as well, and they didn't, particularly on immigration, where yes. Republicans yes. were mostly tending in one direction, which is toward compromise. And and Trump said, you know, there's a lot of Republican voters who disagree with that. And and so he was he was very bold in advocating those positions, which in theory anybody could have done, but only Trump took up in earnest. Joel, we're going to see how this hostile takeover plays out over the next few years. I hope you'll come back and join us again on Right in D.C. And we're so excited about your book, How Trump Won, The Inside Story of a Revolution. And remember, everyone, that it's out today on paperback form, on am- available on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. Joel, thank you so much for joining us on Right in D.C. today. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Music provided by local band Trio Caliente. Visit their website, triocaliente.com, or sample their music on iTunes. We also want to give a special thank you to Hillsdale College. We are recording today's podcast at the Kirby Center on Capitol Hill. Hillsdale College is located in South Central Michigan, and you can learn more about the college at hillsdalecollege.edu. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and hear me every week on iTunes. This is Gail Trotter, right in D.C.